Welcome to Consent Conversations at the Berg. Your hosts are Jennifer Storm and Carmen Brown. Welcome back to Consent Conversations at the Berg, an initiative to foster vital dialogue around the issues of consent. I'm one of your hosts, Jennifer Storm, Director of Equity in Title IX, and I am here with Panyota Papadopoulos, Training and Education Advocate of Turning Point of the Lehigh Valley. Welcome, Panyota. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you share information about Domestic Violence Awareness Month and everything that Turning Point does. Yeah. So many people may be aware of this, but for those who aren't, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month shortened DVAM, Mm -hmm. as it's also known. Mm -hmm. And this evolved out of the Day of Unity in October of 1981. And the Day of Unity was conceived by the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and its intent was to connect advocates across the nation who are working to end violence against women and their children. It soon became not just a day, but an entire week devoted to a range of activities conducted at the local, state, and national levels. The activities conducted were varied and diverse, as were the programs sponsored but had some common themes, including mourning those who have died because of domestic violence and celebrating those who had survived and then connecting those who are working to end violence. It was in October of 1987 that the Domestic Violence Awareness Month was observed. This also marks the same year the first national domestic violence toll-free hotline was initiated. In 1989, Congress passed public law, which officially designated October at in that year as National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and similar legislation had passed every year since. Each year, the Day of Unity is celebrated on the first Monday of DVAM. So with the appreciation of the understanding of the history, we want to chat a little bit about what does Turning Point do? What is your role in the community? And how do you kind of celebrate Domestic Violence Awareness Month? Turning Point is the local domestic and intimate partner abuse agency. We support survivors of all types between Lehigh and Northampton counties. We do have a variety of services, so a lot of it is accessed by our 24-7 helpline that anyone can call. I think a common misconception is that we only support female identifying survivors, Mm -hmm. which is not the case. We do support all male, female, gender, non-conforming, non-binary, etc. We do also support child and teen survivors as well. But yeah, so all of our services are survivor-driven, trauma-informed. Another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that our services are confidential. Uh, So anything that is shared with us over our helpline, in person, et cetera, with our advocates is we are legally bound and cannot share that information without the consent of the individual. Another piece that is not often realized is that our services are available at no cost to the community. So everything that we offer is absolutely at no cost. But we do have empowerment counseling. Our counselors are not therapists, but they do support and guide our survivors. We do individual counseling. We do group counseling. We do counseling for child and teens as well. And we have legal advocates in both courthouses, both Lehigh and Northampton County courthouses. They have an office in each. And we help support through most commonly through the protection from abuse order process for those who are seeking that sort of restraining order protection from abuse order access. So our legal advocates are not able to give out legal advice, but we can make legal referrals to North Penn Legal, who is someone that we frequently work with. We do have housing support in the context of transitional housing advocates that help our survivors who are kind of coming out of their situation that need that housing support to try to find something new for them. 
It's more of a long-term situation. However, we also have an emergency safe house for those who are fleeing in immediate danger and need that safe space away from their abuser. Finally, we do have our training and education team as I'm out here doing what I do. And we go out and try to educate and engage the community and just make sure people are aware of how prevalent this issue is and how we can support and ensure that survivors have allies within the community. Wonderful. So I'm going to unpack a little bit there. First, I just want to reiterate that so on campus, we're often telling students we have our, you know, mandatory reporters, which are the, the majority of the staff and faculty on campus, right? And then we have this kind of small group of confidential support. And we often, you know, we push turning point constantly so that students do know that there is this, well, students, faculty, and staff, to be very honest, know that there is this free and confidential support system in the community. What is the hotline number so that students know where to call? Our hotline number is 610. 610- Four three seven three three six nine, and thank you for highlighting that too. We are also mandated reporters as far as child abuse goes. Mm-hmm. So if any disclosures of child abuse come through, we would be required to share that. We're legally re- required. However, any other information that is shared or disclosed is confidential and would require really a signature from the person who discloses the abuse as well for us to share in any way. It's, it's super important because my role as the Title IX and Title VI coordinators, when I get a report and I reach out to that student, I make sure that they have those resources so that they know, yes, I'm required to reach out to you, but you're not required to reach back out to me. And so I want students to know that there's that option to call this hotline and get advice, get guidance, get support before they might come and talk with me, right, so that they fully understand and are empowered with all of their mm-hmm. options. I think that's super important. You had mentioned protection from abuse orders. Can you dive a little bit deep into that? Like, what are the qualifiers for that? What is a protection from abuse order and how does one qualify? So a protection from abuse order is a legal document, essentially, that enforces a no contact order for the survivor with their abuser. If children are involved in the equation, sometimes children can be written into these protection from abuse orders as well to maintain their safety from the abuser. But ultimately, it is something that is up to the legal system to qualify. They do typically require that it is somebody either that you are in a relationship with, were in a relationship with, live in a household with. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that intimate partner abuse. It can still be that domestic abuse situation or a family member that in some way is creating either harm or injury or threat of harm or injury to the individual. Yeah. And that has to go through the legal system. Obviously, Mm -hmm. that's not something that can be handled on campus. Um, However, we can obviously enforce them if they Mm -hmm. do um, happen on campus. And we can be there in the office as well to help them through it. (laughs) Wonderful. So in a Title IX situation, can you talk a little bit about what what services could um, Turning Point provide to a student? Obviously, the majority of the folks that we're servicing are students, and they have that right to have an advisor. And that advisor can be anyone that they choose, right? It can be a, a best friend, a roommate, a therapist, a counselor. It can also be somebody from Turning Point. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that would look like and what services Turning Point offers on campus during a Title IX process? So we can offer always um, that sort of advocacy piece and education. We do have our counseling as well. We don't I guess our clients or our survivors that work with us do not necessarily have to come to one of our locations for us to offer that counseling support or advocacy support. We can also do that virtually. 
through a confidential means. So that would be one of our options. We also have that court advocacy piece as well. So if we needed an advocate to kind of provide that supportive guide through the process, through the referrals, through really it's an overwhelming process in the first place. And on top of it, if you are going through this sort of situation, you're often feeling kind of hopeless and powerless Mm -hmm. and out of control. So just having somebody there who knows the process, who can kind of help guide you and keep you really just stable and understand everything that's going on. That's wonderful. And I think it's important for students to know that they have that option, that outside supportive option. Because we work obviously with predominantly with college students, I think people think domestic violence and they don't think that applies to them. And so obviously, you know, in many aspects, Mm -hmm. you know, we're really dealing with dating violence. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about like the nuances between those two and what students really need to know? With domestic violence, domestic abuse, we often talk about more of the family relationship essentially anyone within the household necessarily here we are not you know in the household with our family with our uh, related ones so we do often deal with the intimate partner abuse or dating abuse uh, format we actually as turning point have kind of veered away from the term of violence even though that's what's legally within the system Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times that will deter people from coming. They'll think, oh, well, I'm only going through emotional abuse or I'm only going through financial abuse Mm -hmm. and maybe I don't qualify for services or maybe what I'm going through isn't enough. Maybe I'm not worth those services and we don't ever want somebody to feel that way in that situation. So we will often um, we've actually worked to change all of our um, text and literature to reflect that and make sure that we are um, being inclusive in that way to guide it from an abuse perspective not just Mm -hmm. from the violence perspective of what we typically assume being physical and sexual violence so i think your question um was more so along the lines of what can students notice or look for i think so yeah so how what what how does a student know if the situation they're in is potentially leaning towards dating violence right or dating abuse so ultimately what domestic abuse or intimate partner abuse comes down to is power and control, right? Those are the two kind of main words or pieces that it comes down to. So if you're in a situation where you're feeling disrespected or you're feeling intimidated to do things that you're not comfortable doing, if you might be bringing up situations to your partner that you're uncomfortable with and they might be deflecting the responsibility uh, or accountability or dismissing you, bringing it back on you, kind of if in any situation, ultimately you're feeling like you're walking on eggshells around your partner and feel like you aren't being heard and respected and valued, odds are there's something awry there that might need to be discussed with either an advocate, with somebody through Title IX, you know, family, friend, etc. But ultimately we're here. And if you're ever unsure, you can always call and ask. Our helpline is not necessarily only for those who are going through it. It can also be for those who really are just calling for advice. Mm -hmm. It could be a friend calling like, hey, I have, you know, other people that are going through this situation. How can I be the best supportive ally that I can be? So we can always guide you through those resources as well if you're unsure. Yeah. And I think that's oftentimes the case with college students. Like they're in this kind of relationship and there are maybe some some red flags, right? And they're not 100% sure, like, is this an unhealthy relationship? And so what are ways that students can really kind of help identify, like, what are the red flags where they're like, this is clearly, like, not okay, and I should speak with somebody about that? One of the things that we often talk about 
in our trainings, we talk about what is called the power and control wheel. So it's something that has been developed through um, ultimately women that were coming in their domestic abuse, domestic violence situations um, in Minnesota. And their therapists and counselors kind of put together all of this input that had come up and created this wheel where a lot of times people like kind of coming back to the abuse versus violence discussion. A lot of times people assume that abuse has to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. It has to be a black eye or being mm -hmm. kicked or hit or whatnot. I think ultimately it can escalate to that point. And over time we have learned that through the cycle of abuse, it does kind of follow the cyclical pattern of, you know, this honeymoon happy phase, things seem okay. And then there's this tension building phase where you feel like you're walking on eggshells. Your abuser might feel like, uh, or might act in certain ways that make you feel like you are questioning your every move and you're unsure of yourself. And then they might explode, whether that be through violence, whether that be through rage. But a lot of those more subtle red flags are things that we, unfortunately, as a society often dismiss as norms. But you know, a lot of those would fall under that emotional or verbal abuse mm -hmm. situation. So if your partner is belittling you or making you feel like you don't deserve something or less than something, mm -hmm. they might be coercing you to do things that you don't feel comfortable to doing and maybe even have expressed that you're not comfortable doing, but they will continue to coerce or threaten you in some way. They might isolate you. Mm -hmm make you feel like you can't do certain things or talk to certain people. Another thing is intimidation. So if they are intimidating you or putting you down and really just threatening your well-being, especially your mental health, if you start to feel your mental health take a dive with your partner, mm -hmm. um, if you start to feel as though you are dreading or scared to talk to your partner. You shouldn't ever feel that way in a relationship, right? You should always feel like you feel safe with that person and feel like you can be yourself and feel like, you know, this person respects me and my input and we come together as a team. So like I said, if that's something that you're starting to feel, it might be time to even just talk to somebody about it and kind of weigh it through. Yeah. Obviously every situation is different and we never want somebody to feel like, okay, well I don't check fully everything off this list. So I'm not mm -hmm. a survivor. Um, that's not the case. If you, even if you only check one or two, if it's enough that you're starting to feel that I'm walking on eggshells, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe. I don't mm -hmm. feel like I can, like I'm respected and valued. Then, you know, talk to somebody. It's not yeah. here. Yeah. And it is so difficult. Um, a, I think for folks to identify it because it's, it's often, you know, the abuse is often done over a period of time and it's just kind of like, death by a thousand cuts, right? Yeah. It's that slow erosion of one's self-esteem. Then you couple that with that isolation where, you know, that the person is not wanting you to spend time with family and friends or is, you know, maybe too possessive. Um, you know, jealousy is a normal um, feeling that everybody has, but usually in abuse situations, that jealousy, it goes to an extreme where it's, you know, they don't want you talking to anyone or they don't want you dressing a certain way or it's constantly... The, the accusations that you're trying to, you know, get other people's attention. Right. And when you couple that kind of erosion of self-esteem and then a successful isolation, there does become this almost over-reliance on this one person. Mm -hmm. And it can make you feel like I, I have nowhere else to turn. Like this is my person. Mm -hmm. They're the only person I can trust now. Um, and so can you speak a little bit to that cycle of abuse where, 
you know, we often hear, well, why don't they just break up? Why don't they just leave? And it's not that simple, right? Mm -hmm. Love and relationships are just not that simple. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that cycle? Yeah. Where you mentioned the death of a thousand cuts. I always think of the analogy of boiling a frog Mm -hmm. where you don't start with, you know, the hottest temperature. You put them in a nice, warm, like hot tub like feeling and then you slowly turn the temperature up. And a lot of times that's what it's like being the survivor in that situation where, You know, you come into it thinking like, wow, this person is really great. They might be really they might be love bombing you or providing gifts or making you feel like the most special, appreciated person in the world. Um, But as time goes on, they, you know, will often show their true selves and kind of, again, coming back down to that power and control um, explanation where if if they're trying to take control of the situation, trying to take control of you and your decisions and your rights as a human, as a person within a relationship. Um, and it's funny because as, as the cycle of abuse kind of continues, right, it escalates over time. But there's also that, you know, as it escalates and might get into that rage or violent situation, a lot of times the abuser will come back and they might seemingly appear to be very remorseful. They might even be crying. They might say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you, I, you know. I had a bad day. I did this. They might also even blame it on you. I did this because you did Mm -hmm. this first. So, you know, it's hard over time that that shame and that guilt and embarrassment makes it really hard for survivors to even speak on what they're going through. But that even doesn't incorporate all of these other pieces where they might be reliant uh, if financial abuse is in the situation. You know, I know for college students that might not necessarily be the case, but it is often the most common form of abuse that is included and often not noted. So it's like in 99% of unhealthy relationships or abusive relationships, you'll see elements of financial abuse. I think it's often hard for people because, like I said, it's not that simple, right? It's not black and white. You fall in love with someone, and so you truly love that person. And then they start to behave certain ways that make you feel undermined or um, unsafe, but it's not all the time, right? right? And so you often hear from individuals, well, they're not always like that, right? Like nine times out of 10, they're amazing. Or like, you know, when they're, when it's good, it's so good, but when it's bad, it's bad. And those aren't healthy relationships, right? Like, listen, never, no one's perfect. People make mistakes and there are, you know, there has to be that genuine um, ability to kind of come together and resolve and restore any harm that's done in a relationship because it's, it's not logical to think you're going to be in a relationship where no harm occurs. Right. And when I say harm, I mean like emotional, right? Like you're going to have those disagreements. You're going to have those disappointments. Yeah. Disappointments, right. those emotional hurts. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the, when it becomes a pattern mm-hmm. and you see that, okay, this just keeps going and going and going. Those are the, the real red flags that I think students and anyone really need to kind of be like, okay, wait a minute. This, this hasn't changed. The behavior hasn't changed to the, the you know, it continues. Um, and so, it's important, I think, for students to be able to reach out early to talk to somebody um, and, and be able to kind of prevent what could be potentially violence. Because we also know, like in in fatalities, in, in most domestic violence homicides, the actual homicide is the first act of physical violence. And that shocks a lot of people when they hear that, because they when you think of dating violence or domestic violence, like you said earlier, you think of the violence piece. You think there has to be hitting. There has to be a black eye. There has to be these threats. And often it's not. It's often that frog that you're boiling in that in that kind of blender. But so is the offender oftentimes. And it is, you know, this buildup over time where they aren't even maybe intending to get violent. But there's that part of them 
that it happens. And then it escalates into this, you know, catastrophic and life altering experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's so important to constantly be educated and empowered Mm -hmm. about what these flags look like. Uh, These red flags, whether it's beige flags, green flags, right? Let's talk about green flags in relationships, Mm -hmm. right? That, that, what, so let's talk about some green flags. Like we're talking a lot about, uh, you know, what students should look out for in terms of the negative, but what are the positive things? Like what does a healthy relationship look like? Mm -hmm. I was, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things you just mentioned, if that's okay. Go for it. So one of the things you had mentioned was when a person chooses to leave, why is it so hard for them to leave? Mm -hmm. Another piece that I wanted to add to that is that a lot of times people don't realize that the average amount of times that somebody tries to leave is seven. Mm -hmm. So, and that could be more, it could be less. Often a person will choose to try to leave and then because of fear of harm, because of fear of retaliation, fear of, you know, just not knowing what's out there, not knowing what's available to them. So as far as green flags go, if you look really at the reverse, right? So if the understanding of an abusive situation is that the abuser is trying to take power and control over the situation, it is somebody who empowers you, who allows you to be yourself and encourages you to be yourself in, you know, the most full sense. So whether that be respecting trusting um you know there's that sort of equal bounce back and forth where you feel safe to be yourself and again the opposite you don't want to feel like you're walking on eggshells you feel like you know what something happened that's really stressful my partner is the first person i want to tell and i know that i can feel safe sharing that information with them or even just down to simple things right like where do we want to go eat today you know making sure that there's that equal conversation Mm -hmm. and input back and forth where okay you said you did this last time, so why don't we do this? Okay, and there's that, you know, discussion element. I think also healthy partners will often encourage your self-confidence, whereas unhealthy or abusive partners will sort of tear or shred that confidence away. The other big important piece is that just because you're in a healthy relationship doesn't mean that you won't go through disappointment mm-hmm. or that sort of conflict. The It comes back down to, Are you both taking accountability for your actions and trying to rectify that as you move forward? And granted, again, we're human. We will make mistakes. But are you and your partner both coming back, having that conversation, saying, you know what, I'm sorry, and showing that I'm sorry through your actions as you proceed? Mm -hmm. Um, With abusers, a lot of times they might make that effort to start in order to regain control but often you'll see that pattern kind of continue where it comes back to they are taking advantage of the situation or taking control of decisions um, making you feel less than so as long as you are in a healthy relationship coming back to that conversation of conflict and you're both coming from equal footing and respecting each other's input i think that's where you know the the differences kind of lie definitely So let's shift gears a little bit into a word that I think is way often overused and misused, and that is stalking Mm -hmm. or stalker, right? We often hear people use that word in jest and almost in a joking manner, right? Where stalking actually is a very kind of, you know, intense and horrific thing for an individual to experience. So can you talk about like the true meaning of the word? Because I feel like oftentimes we see people perceive social awkwardness, right? Or maybe even neurodivergence as um someone's stalking and when in reality they may just not know how to approach you or they may not have the same 
level of social comfort or social skills that you have. So can we talk about like, what is the true definition of stalking? What are the elements there? And, you know, how, how can a student really identify like, okay, this is, this is legally the definition of stalking as opposed to this is just making me feel a little uncomfortable and I need to set a boundary. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of come back, comes a little bit back down to the green versus red flags mm -hmm. as well conversation, because, you know, you might be in an unhealthy relationship where you maybe you and your partner have learned unhealthy habits over time. And it's something that needs to be discussed, I think, in the same realm. Um, if you're in an uncomfortable situation and you tell the person you're uncomfortable and they respect that and they recognize that and take steps to, again, rectify or resolve that, that is the difference between that versus, you know, a situation where somebody you know, you tell them, hey, I'm uncomfortable with this. Please don't do this. And they continue that repeated stalking or harassment or abuse. Mm -hmm. So with stalking, a lot of times you'll see that somebody is being repeatedly watched, followed, monitored, mm -hmm. harassed. A lot of times we have this, you know, vision of somebody hiding in the bushes. But nowadays with digital technology and everything, mm -hmm. it's so much easier, unfortunately, to stalk people, follow their um, digital footprint mm -hmm. along what they're doing. Um, another thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize with stalking can be those excessive calls, texts, unwanted gifts. I think that those are kind of more of the things that we might see on the college spectrum of things where, you know, maybe somebody has expressed their interest in you and you are not interested and they continue to harass and push past that boundary and let you know that, hey, I'm interested and I'm not taking no for an answer. Mm -hmm that would kind of fall under that stalking line yeah. where it's, it's time to step in and talk to somebody, you know, yeah, definitely. And usually stalking requires like a pattern, right? So I know what we often advise students is to document, right? Document everything, document the text, document when, when is this person showing up? Is, is it reasonable that they would have been in this location at the same time as I was, if they kind of approach you and they know where you've been for the last like couple of days, that's obviously a sign of digital stalking. So, yeah, like all of those kind of signs and pinpoints. Well, this has been a really great conversation and I appreciate you coming in. Peniota, can you also talk about like, do you have any events coming up in October or yeah. other ways that maybe students could get engaged um, with your organization with Turning Point? Yeah, absolutely. So we are always willing to have volunteers uh, for anything. Uh, if anyone wants to get more engaged in the process, if you go to our website, which is www.turningpointlv, earlyhighvalley.org. We do have a volunteer page, so you can always apply in that regard. We also have our, so as you mentioned, that annually they tend to do a vigil um, for those who have lost their lives to domestic abuse, intimate partner abuse. So we do have our annual vigil coming up if anyone is interested in, in attending. That will be at the Ice House in Bethlehem on October 24th. I believe it's 6 to 7 p.m., but we'll be sharing more of that information out. If anyone would like to volunteer for that, we do have a vigil volunteer meeting coming up on september 25th it is virtual it's from 6 to 7 p.m so if you're interested in volunteering for our vigil you can just email training at turningpointlv.org and we can get you set up with that we are going to be more visible around some of the local libraries as well offering trainings to the general public we are kind of slowly encroaching and joining into college campus life and supporting their efforts as well making sure that we you know kind of have that voice throughout 
I also want students to know and faculty and staff that, you know, oftentimes Carmen Brown, who's our associate prevention educator, she's often the face of the prevention efforts and the training efforts on campus. But we also want groups to know because we have a lot of student groups, whether it's Greek, athletic or just, you know, affinity groups on campus that they can reach out to you as well to bring a training in whether it's, you know, for the whole community or just for their group specifically. So would it be that email, that training at turningpointlv.org that they would email? Yeah. So if they're interested in being involved, yep, they can email training at turningpointlv.org. Perfect. And we can set them up with whatever they're interested in. Great. Any other resources or anything else that students and faculty and staff should be aware of? If you go to our website, we do actually have a good number of both local and national resources. Obviously, we are the resource locally for that intimate partner dating abuse We do also, as well as Muhlenberg, has uh, a connection with Crime Victims Council, Mm -hmm. uh, which is more for the really any element of crime. But they are very highly supportive of and they started out as the local rape crisis center. Mm -hmm. So they tend to support more of those sexual assault Mm -hmm. situations. Some other important or helpful websites that might be beneficial would be loveisrespect.org. There's a lot of really good helpful quizzes, articles just information on there, stalkingawareness.org, I know Spark uh, mm-hmm. in for short. They have a lot of really good and recent information on stalking because that is something that is constantly ever evolving. Mm-hmm. And like you said, is coming up in our natural daily dialogue. And we need to be cognizant of what is stalking and what isn't necessarily. Um, and joinonelove.org is another really good organization that isn't on our website that would be beneficial for this age group to look through. They also have an education center that provides a lot of really good resources as well. So great. Well, thank you so much for taking time to join us today and to come on to consent conversations. We really appreciate it. Um, So until next month, as we always say, when in doubt, talk it out. Consent conversations at the Berg is a production of Muhlenberg college the Office of Equity in Title IX, the Department of Prevention Education, and WMUH Allentown. This program is recorded and produced in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania.